honestly, I barely have an episode ready. I just wanted to lay claim to this dumb title. So, hey there, and welcome back to the World Hopper's Guide to the Cosmere. I'm your host, Arian, and this week we take a deep dive into the planet Cell, the home of Elantris and the Emperor's Soul, and the second most terrifying storm of magic known as the Door. We're going to be doing a big overview of a whole lot of things, including the geography, magic, history, and religion, so let's jump right into it. Spoilers ahead for Elantris, the Emperor's Soul, a little bit of Mistborn secret history, and a fair bit of Cosmere history. Let's go! Alright, so... The Selish solar system is relatively simple as Cosmere solar systems go. It's no Roshar, I'll tell you that much. That's a little joke for the nerds who listen to this podcast, I guess. Anyway, orbiting a central star, Masha, are four planets and a dwarf planet, as well as an asteroid belt. All but two of the planets are uninhabitable. Cell is the centerpiece. Sitting at 1.5 times Cosmere standard size, in other words, one and a half times as large as Yolan, and therefore Earth, and 1.2 times the gravity, Cell is described as having vast continents and sweeping oceans to create a diverse landscape, with an extreme amount of variation. This description comes to us from Chris in the Arcanum Unbounded, and it actually tells us more about her origin and about Yolan than about Cell. It's apparently pretty rare to have diversity on the scale of, quote, snow-covered plains and expansive deserts, biome variety that seems pretty reasonable to us here on Earth. But anyway, three large continents span much of the planet. One, known as Opalon or Cicla, is the home of Aralon and the Fjordel Empire, and the main setting of Elantris. The continent to the north holds Teod, Teod? Teod, Serene's original home, as well as Jindo and the Rose Empire, where the Emperor's soul takes place. As for the mysterious third continent, we know practically nothing about what or who currently lives there, but we can assume they've got a similar connection to the overall magic system, which we'll get into later. Now, we're unaware of exactly how humans arrived to Cell, but we're much more aware of the shards that settled there. For unknown reasons, the two shards, Devotion and Dominion, held by Aeona and Sky respectively, found their way onto the planet and significantly influenced the development of language and cultures across the three continents. Although we don't know the specifics, of how much the two shards cooperated, and how the intents of devotion and dominion manifested themselves, we can draw a couple of inferences based on the primary religions, Shu Korath and Shu Dereth, which we'll talk about more in depth. Now, while there's obviously a bunch of religions on every planet, and I kind of think that's one of the themes in the Cosmere, I think there's a greater emphasis here on the religion's effect in everyone's lives. Uh, just, just based on what we've seen in Elantris, I could be totally wrong. But anyway... By the point of Elantris, the Fjordal Empire spans the entire continent of Cicla, save for Aralon, while the Rose Empire to the north likely has a similar dominance over their own region. With that then, we turn to the magic of Cell. Honestly, it's a little redundant here for me to go over them in significant detail, because Steve over at the Rayfo YouTube channel has done a magnificent job of breaking it all down, but, and I'll link that down below, but for the sake of completion, we'll go into it here. All magic on Cell comes from the door. Well, what is the door, you might ask? That's an excellent question, listener. Well, to answer that, we're going to dig back into the history of the Cosmere. So buckle up. After the shattering of Adenalsium, the 16 shards made a pact to never settle close to one another, as they went out into the Cosmere. Now, this rule was almost instantly broken by several pairs. 
including, for some reason, the shards of Devotion and Dominion, who settled on Cell and did the aforementioned influencing over the world. After an indeterminate amount of time, the shard Odium, our good friend from Roshar, off on his quest to become the most powerful shard, was trying to kill the shard Ambition, who he considered to be his most dangerous enemy. Along the way, it seems, he found the time in his busy schedule to splinter Devotion and Dominion. Now why he did that is mostly trivial. He means to either kill the shards who broke the initial agreement, or simply those who would be rivals to him. I think it's mostly the latter, with him using the former as an excuse. Now how exactly is it that Odium accomplished this feat, when we've seen that shards more or less have the exact same power level? Well, Brandon has been cagey about it, but it's been heavily suggested that the shard Autonomy had some hand in it. When asked directly if Autonomy was involved, Brandon rayfoed the question, but said it would be dangerous to have one shard attack another shard. I assume because they fear mutually assured destruction, as we saw occur at the end of the first Mistborn trilogy. This also suggests that it would be even more deadly to attack two shards with one. He says that a wise shard would avoid direct confrontation unless they had a specific advantage, but the extent to which autonomy helped out is unclear. When asked another time whether Bavadin, quote, in any way helped splinter devotion and dominion, Brandon was still evasive, but when the phrase, in any way, was emphasized again, Brandon said yes, you could say that. So, it may not have been direct help, but I think we can be relatively sure that Autonomy, who we've seen show disdain for shards that take up residence together, helped in the splintering of Devotion and Dominion. Now, aided or not, Odium was pretty inexperienced at the time, and didn't know how to properly splinter shards. Thus, once they were splintered, he just had a whole bunch of investiture on his hands. So, he shoves the investiture of Devotion and Dominion out of the spiritual realm and into the cognitive realm around Cell, thus preventing anybody else from taking up the power. This power, unchecked and splintered with no real release valve, in the same way that Honor has on Roshar, the door effectively becomes a storm of investiture that makes world hopping to and from Cell one of the most dangerous trips in the Cosmere. So with this all said, how does the magic manifest itself? There are six primary ways that we currently know about. Those are Aeon Door, Dakor, Cheshon, Forgery, Blood Sealing, and Potion Making. All of these magic systems have a strong element of location involved in them. They have a limited range, and the farther you get from the center of a magic system, the harder it becomes to perform it. That might be partly because of the nature of the door, since it's in the cognitive realm, where location still matters, as opposed to the spiritual, where time and space are a big mix of mush. Now these magics all also place an importance on shape, Aeondor, which we see used by Raiden, involves an Elantrian tracing out the shape of a specific Aeon, which itself is based upon the shape of Aerolon itself, to access the door and to achieve a desired effect, much like a programming language. Inextricably tied to Aeondor are the Elantrians, the people who can use it. These are beautiful, glowing, highly invested people who seem randomly chosen by an event called the Sheod, and therefore can wield Aeondor. Aeondor effectively involves an Elantrian drawing out a specific shape uh, out of a whole bunch of them that are known, and channeling the door through that shape to achieve a desired effect. There's healing, building, teleportation, all kinds of... Uh, almost anything can be done with the door if you have the right command drawn in the right way. In that way, as mentioned, it's very much like a programming language. Forgery, the other magic we see the most of, involves the creation of complex stamps, which in themselves have embedded a representation of the Rose Empire, that can affect the cognitive identity of an object, shaping its history to become something else so long as the stamp survives. 
in The Emperor's Soul, we see Shai use this magic system to create a stamp of the Emperor himself, as well as different versions of her own identity. Aside from this form of forgery, known as soul forging, there is resealing, which is used to heal the body, and remembering, which the Rose Empire uses to recreate famous historical objects. Forgery is located to Maipon, a region of the Rose Empire. Dakor is the magic system used by the Fjordel Empire, mostly seen at the end of Elantris. It's a relatively new magic system, one that was being developed to defeat the Elantrians right before Elantris itself fell. It appears as though the Dakor monks use a ritual chanting to somehow twist the bones of their arms into specific shapes that represent Fjordel symbols, granting them a variety of powers. Some of these powers include enhanced strength and speed, as well as teleportation, shifting appearance, negating aeons, and more. This power stems from sacrifice. Teleportation of a large group, for example, requires the sacrifice of one soul. The monk Dilof has a resistance to Aeon Door attacks, which he obtained at the cost of the lives of 50 or so Dakor monks. We'll likely see more of Dakor in the eventual Elantris sequel, which will take place in the capital of Fjordel. Cheshon is the magic of the Jindo people, a martial arts style that requires the user to move their body in a specific pattern of motion to access the door. In doing so, they glow dimly and are provided with immense strength, speed, and perception. We mainly see Baron Shuden use this system in the final battle, and he is a self-proclaimed amateur, so we may see even more advanced practitioners doing more cool stuff in future stories. Blood sealing is the magic of Dazamar, a region of the Rose Empire. This magic is similar to forgery in that it uses inked runes to create a variety of magical effects, only instead of ink, they use human blood. Blood seals are typically made of bone, and the blood used to create them must be freshly harvested from the target within the previous day. A blood sealer is used to keep Shai trapped within her room in the Emperor's soul. If she escaped the ward, the blood sealer would know. This effect, in addition, appears to make the stamped object unforgeable. The second use of blood sealing that we've seen is skeletals, literally skeletons with blood seals on their foreheads, capable of tracking anybody if given a recent enough blood sample. These skeletons are apparently pretty deadly, but Shai manages to defeat them by use of her martial-focused personality. Potion making is the last of the known magic systems and perhaps at least understood. It's used by a man named Fortin in Hrovel, who can use Investiture to create a variety of potions, poisons, and antidotes with a variety of effects. He has, in the past, been able to create an antidote for a potion without one, and during the course of Elantris, he creates a potion that makes somebody appear like an Elantrian for several days. We know almost nothing about how this works. Now beyond all the human-facing magic systems on cell are two interesting quirks of the world. Seons and Skaze are pieces of sentient investiture on cell, with Seons described as orbs of light with an Aeon at the center, and Skaze as orbs of sucking darkness with similar markings at their heart. These are splinters of devotion and dominion, respectively. Tiny pieces of the shattered investiture that gained an intelligence of their own, bearing similar intents to their shards. Like Sprenon Roshar, these are mostly cognitive entities, and could be pulled into the physical realm if given in a strong enough anchor. And can do what Spren do in the physical realm. If we're not spoiling Stormlight here. Now, Seons are used widely in Elantris, Erlon, and Teod where they form a completely voluntary spiritual bond with individual humans, and act as both advisors and as instantaneous communication devices. Skays, meanwhile, have some kind of connection to Dakor and Fjordel. 
as opposed to the lovingness of the devotion-based seans, skays are power-hungry and potentially evil. We see Hoyd talking to a skays in the epilogue of the 10th anniversary Elantris book, where they seem to have formed some kind of partnership. Now, let's look at religion on Cell. The primary religious practices we've seen on Cell have been Shu Karath, practiced by Erelon and Teod, and Shu Dureth, practiced by the Fjordel. Both of these religions stem from the original Shu Keseg. The story goes that a Jindo man by the name of Keseg preached unity of mankind beneath a single omnipotent god, and two of his disciples were Dareth and Korath, who collected his works in a book called the Do Kando. Dareth and Korath, however, interpreted the teachings differently. Korath believed this unity was to be achieved through love, while Dareth believed that obedience to a united government was the way to go. They each wrote their own books, the Do Dareth and the Do Korath, and each man went to different places in the world to preach. Dareth went north, where his teachings were embraced by the Fjordel. Wern Wolfden I was the first to convert, and this spread across the entire Fjordel Empire. Shu Dareth worshipped the god Jadeth, believing that through absolute unity, their god will come down once more, and they believed the Wern to be both a religious and political leader of the world. Korath, meanwhile, went to Aralon, where people worshipped the Elantrians. This showed followers of Shu Korath that all were to be loved, including the pagan gods and their followers. Shu Korath and the Elantrians got on well, to the point where a Korathi temple was built in Elantris and the name of the Shu Korath god changed from the Jindo word Dashu to the name Domi, which takes from the Aeon Omi, which means love. Eventually, after Korath's death, his follower Shan Ven opted to move the center of Shu Korath to the peninsula state of Teod across the Sea of Fjordel. Thus, in these two religions, we see some of the clear markings of devotion and dominion. Devotion is present in both, I think, given that the churches are so strong, but we can see signs of dominion in the Shudareth philosophy and the Fjordel god Jadeth, while the kinder Domi might fit with devotion. Meanwhile, the Jeska religion was the main one of Dulatel before it was overthrown by the Fjordel Empire, with the Jeskar Mysteries as an offshoot cult that performed human sacrifices, and we saw how that worked out in Elantris. Now, delving into the stories themselves, we obviously have two primary stories to draw from, Elantris and the Emperor's Soul, and if we want to count the short story The Hope of Elantris, we can include that. I'm not going to mention it, it doesn't really matter. But anyway, for timeline stuff, I'm going to be working mainly off of the big Cosmere timeline document created by someone whose identity I don't know, but which I'll link in the show notes. It's not 100% accurate, but it is a really good timeline if you ever wanted to check that out. Now, the main event that divides the timeline of Cell is the Rayode, an earthquake that disrupted the land of Aralon and halted the flow of the door to Aeondor and the Elantrians. On a Cosmere scale, this happened roughly 9 or 10 millennia after the shattering of Adenalsium, and roughly 8 millennia uh, after the splintering of Devotion and Dominion, and 200 years after the start of Cell's Late Era, the start of which, incidentally, ha happens to occur just a few years before the Recreants on Roshar. I don't think they're connected in any way, I just find that interesting. Now anyway, the Rayode, and most of the events we see on Cell, occur well before the main plots of the other Cosmere stories. It'll be another half-century before the Lord Ruler first comes to power on Scadrial, and another thousand years after that before the discovery of Awakening on Nalthus. The only Cosmere story earlier in the timeline is White Sand. Anyway, the Rayode hits, and the Sheode, the process of becoming an Elantrian, becomes a curse. King Eodon becomes the king of Aralon, and it mostly changes to a mercantile form of government. About ten years after the Rayode, 
Prince Raiden of Erlon wakes up to find himself an Elantrian. At the same time, the Fjordal Empire, which has taken over most of Opalon, makes an attempt to take over Erlon, a movement spearheaded by none other than the Gjorn Hrothen. Then the Gjorn known as Hrothen. Seriously, these names are really hard. But anyway, blah blah blah, the events of Elantris happen, and the Dakor monks attack Elantris, only to be rebuffed when Raiden figures out the secret of Eondor and the Riode, fixing the magic of Elantris just in time. Erlon and Teod find themselves allied by marriage, Erlon and Teod find themselves allied by the marriage of Serene and Raiden, while Fjordel still plots to continue conquering. Sometime after this, we'll pick up with the untitled sequel to Elantris. The story will not follow Serene and Raiden, but will likely follow Serene's cousins, Adian, Deora, and Kaize. This story will center on the capital of the Fjordel Empire, where we'll learn more about Dakor and events going on in the world. It'll probably only pick up sometime within the next 10 or 15 years after Elantris, so still pretty soon after the Rayode, and still pretty far before everything else in the Cosmere. This will be followed by the newly reconfirmed third book in the Elantris trilogy, which will once again follow a new set of characters and focus around a different city. Then we pick up with the Emperor's Soul, which follows the story of the Soul Forger Shai in the Rose Empire. With the near assassination of Emperor Ashurvan, 49th Emperor of the Eighty Sons, the five Arbiters of the Heritage Faction provide Shai with a chance of freedom if she can recreate Ashurvan's soul. Against all odds, she manages to create a good enough likeness to possibly create sweeping change before finally escaping. Notably, Shai was only imprisoned because the Imperial Fool, better known to us as Hoyd, betrayed her. Hoyd took the Moon Scepter, an artifact which we understand to be able to act as a Rosetta Stone between the various Salish magic systems, so pretty powerful. We know that Shai, at the very least, will find her way into a future story somewhere. The Emperor's Soul is roughly contemporary with the first Elantris book, and Brandon has said that she will likely show up in one of the sequels, if not as a supporting character, then as a cameo. We also have reason to think that she's found a way to world hop based on hints from Brandon. He has confirmed that she did eventually track down the Imperial Fool, which means she either finds him when he's back on Cell in an Elantris sequel, or she finds him on a different planet. This, combined with the fact that she's already somewhat aware of the physical, cognitive, and spiritual realms, suggests that both Shy and Cell as a whole are unusually romantically aware. Jumping way forward though, we see Elantrians in a few more places, popping up all over the Cosmere. In particular, we've seen them twice in the Cognitive Realm, and we see that they are extremely Cosmere aware. Possibly the most Cosmere aware planet at any given point in time. The Eyrie are a faction of Elantrians that appear in Mistborn's secret history, based out of a fortress in the Cognitive Realm and handling a special technology that can somehow provide a person enough connection to ascend to Shardhood. They also have forces on the border of the planet Threnody, where the Forests of Hell are located. The Iri were around before the Rayout occurred, and were actually off-cell when it happened, indicating Cosmere awareness for an even longer period of time. We know, at best, that they wanted to ascend to preservation when the Shard's vessel was killed, but ultimately failed in that endeavor. Also, interestingly, Brandon continually repeats that the Iri are old, as in, he literally draws out the word old, and refers to them as, quote, very, 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 very old, and then adds very old. Now, the leader of the Iri in secret history is known as Alono, a wizened-looking Elantrian, which is also the name of a lake in Erelon. I'm guessing the lake was named after the person, but we don't know for sure. That's been Rayfoed. Now, the other Elantrian we see off-world is the lighthouse keeper in Shadesmar in Oathbringer, 
This fellow, Reno, happens to be the first Hoed that Raiden threw into the mysterious pool above Elantris, which turned out to be a perpendicularity. Reno appears alive and well 1,000 years after his supposed death, operating a lighthouse in Shadesmar and demonstrating an ability to see into the spiritual realm using a mysterious crystal ball. Now, what do they want? Where are they going? We don't know, but we know that the Elantrians are very heavily involved in whatever is going on in the overall Cosmere story. Uh, and I guess we'll find that out. But for now, I've been talking for a really long time. Um, <laughs> I think that's enough for this overview. There's a ton going on with Cell, and we're going to see a ton more going on in the Elantra sequels once Stormlight 5 is done. I'm super excited for that, uh, probably more so even than in than Mistborn Era 3. Uh, I'm obviously most excited for Stormlight, if the history of this show couldn't tell you that I really like those books. But I like Elantris as well, I like it a lot. But anyway, uh, let's just jump into the outro, I don't have anything else. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World Hopper's Guide. Let me know if you have any comments, counter-arguments, or thoughts about the things I got wrong or right in this episode or the podcast in general, either in an email to worldhoppersguide at gmail.com or in a comment on the Reddit thread. If you like what you heard, feel free to subscribe to the show or recommend it to your Cosmere-friendly friends. If you enjoy the show and would like to support it, I'd really appreciate a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps get the show seen by more people and widens our little community. I've seen two, maybe three five-star reviews on iTunes, uh, which I very much appreciate. Uh, five-star ratings, that is. Uh, thank you to those people who did that. If you also want to leave uh, kind words, I would love that as well, but I will certainly take a five-star rating. I'm not complaining. Thank you. Sorry, this ending is getting weird. Uh, anyway... Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the intro music. Thanks to Brandon Sanderson for this very complicated world. And thanks to you for listening. So, see you next time.